you know, that'd be essentially if you were standing on the top of the Empire State Building and tried to take a straw and put it in a Coke can that was sitting down on the sidewalk. That's, that's the type of precision that these drillers can get. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 29 of the For the Love Data podcast. I'm your host Robert Furr and today I have a special treat where I got to sit down and talk with a dear friend of mine who I get to see every once in a while and have lots of fun with but I hardly ever get to have a professional conversation with him. His name's Josh Ward, he's a subsea engineer with Chevron and has been working with them for about a little bit more than a decade now. Um, he's, a, he's a Red Raider uh, coming from our hometown of Lubbock and uh, we sat down to talk about two different subjects. We argued whether data is or is not the new oil. I think it is, spoiler alert. And then we talk a little bit about the data of oil and just some of the mind-boggling statistics that you deal with as a subsea engineer. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, please check out the show notes at fortheloveofdata.com e29. And please reach out to me if you have any questions or thoughts on this or any of our other shows that we've covered. So let's go ahead and dig right in and find out, is data the new oil? Hey everybody, I'm here today with my good friend Josh Ward. We've been friends for ages and he works with Chevron, so I'm going to let you uh, hear a little bit of his background from him and then we'll get into today's topic. Josh, tell us a little bit about how you got started in the oil and gas industry. So I got a mechanical engineering degree from Texas Tech University, go Red Raiders. Not as good as the Aggies, but we'll let that slide <laughs> for this uh, the rest of this chat. So, and then right out of college, I went straight into working with Chevron 11 years ago, been with them ever since. I've done a lot of work here in Houston, as well as Kazakhstan, Perth, Australia, and I did my time out in Midland, which is one of the funnest locations we have. Indeed it is. First place I went rock climbing was actually in Midland, so it does hold a special place in my heart, even if there's not quite as many nice restaurants as there are in Houston. Definitely not. So how, how long have we known each other now? Gosh, it's been, it's been, it, it, we can all count it in decades now, I think. That means we're really old. So yeah, I, think, uh, yes. I think it's closing in on somewhere around like 25 years, something like <laughs> that, right? Quarter century? Yes. So I'll also say that you do have some experience um, doing work, uh, not only in the places that you mentioned, but also you spent some time in Singapore and China and a few other places, right? Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I love about Chevron is and oil and gas in general is it's so international and Chevron has given me the opportunities to go around the world just on my last project I was based in Australia but we were doing manufacturing of equipment in China, Singapore, Malaysia, Norway, England you know we we were all over the place and so what what are some of the things that you do for Chevron like what's the type of work that you do on a daily basis most of it is project management. Right now I'm in an early phase project where we're trying to put together exactly what the project would look like, how would we structure it, what is the overall scope of the project, and then get put together a good cost estimate to make sure that it's, it's going to be a good legacy project for Chevron. And this is all around offshore drilling, right? I, I've pretty much done only offshore work. Uh, my last project on the Wheatstone project in Australia at the beginning, I was overseeing the final testing of all the subsea equipment before it goes offshore. And then the second half of the project, I was the hookup and commissioning coordinator for the subsea aspect based on the actual offshore platform. So you coordinated the hookups is what you're telling me? I coordinated the hookups. <laughs> That's the champion position you want. 
Okay, so today we are going to talk about, we are going to argue with each other, uh, just like good friends always do. The topic today is going to be, is data the new oil? And we both came across some articles talking about this, and if you do some research on this, the concept has been out there for a while. Uh, but I'm going to take one side of this, and Josh is going to take the other. And we're probably going to come at this from two slightly different sides, so I'm going to come at this from a data and a technical side, thinking about all of the data work that I've done. I think, Josh, you can kind of attest to this, but you're probably going to come at it more from uh, a background in the oil industry. I know you've, you've got some technical expertise, but you're not someone sitting there every day working with uh, data as your primary focus or, uh, or doing a lot of coding or anything like that. So any, anything else about your, your vantage point on this before we yeah, have it? If I get more than 3,000 lines in an Excel spreadsheet, that, that starts to get a bit ridiculous for me. Woo. All right. Well, we, this means I'm going to have a good chance of winning this argument then. <laughs> okay. So is data the, the new oil? This concept uh, first originated by uh, a gentleman named Clyde Humby, uh, excuse me, Clive Humby. He was a British mathematician who established Tesco's club card loyalty program. He highlighted the fact that although inherently valuable, data needs processing just like oil needs refining before its true value can be unlocked. And so in researching this topic, I did some armchair Googling, data, oil, is data the new oil? And there are articles from everyone from Harvard Business Review to Forbes um, to different um, energy industry um, folks that have, have taken a viewpoint on this. And I think data is the new oil. And I think there are a lot of reasons why it's a strong, uh, a strong candidate for that based on how the world is moving into a more technical kind of 2.0, 3.0 conceptual phase. But Josh has a, a difference of opinion here. Yeah, I, I just think that data and oil are just too different to really make this sort of comparison. You know, the, just the, the usefulness of them and what they're used in and for, how they're used. You know, the, the fact that oil is, is something more physical, whereas data is something more ethereal. I, I, and I, I might be showing my data ignorance, but uh, it, to me, data is kind of magic. So <laughs> it is truly magic, and uh, that's why I love it, because I'm a magician now. I, uh, I wish I was as good as... Uh, David Copperfield or, you know, s someone like that. But uh, I really think it's a good analogy uh, because if you if you boil it down to some of the commonalities between them, they're both valuable commodities. Um, they both have many different uses among applications. So, you know, data is a commodity in that there's so much of it being generated. Um, there's the Internet of Things. There's sensor data that's generating tons of it. There's biometric data. There's cars. And I wish I had the stat. I actually saw something, I think, from visual capitalists on Twitter, and there's something like, uh, I think it's like four to five gigabytes of information per day generated by a car alone. And so if you think of how many cars are on the road, how many sensors we have out there, if you think about how much of that data is being generated, I think it is a commodity, kind of like oil. And I think that there are many different uses because you can use data to make personalized recommendations. You can use data to test hypotheses. You can use data science to uncover insights. You can use data to create more data to make something more valuable. Just like my understanding, and, and I'm, I'm going to show my lack of understanding on the oil and gas side, but I know that oil is used for a lot of things, everything from you know gasoline for our cars and jet fuel, but it's also used in things like plastics, right? Yeah, absolutely. It can be used in many different ways. It's actually pretty interesting to see how many different uses you can make out of a single barrel of oil. 
And I think I will give you that oil is still an incredibly important commodity. It's used in tons of things. It's going to be used for a long time, right? But if you start looking at like what are the, the biggest companies today in terms of valuation, Exxon, Chevron, the super majors, they're still up there. But when you talk about big movers, most people think about Google, Facebook, Apple. Am I wrong about that? Is that who you think about in your head when you think of the biggest companies in the world today? So definitely Apple would have, would have come to my mind. That's because you're an Apple fanboy. Yes, I, I do love I do love me some Apple. <laughs> but to me, the big thing is you can touch oil. I can touch it. And, and I think a lot of the reasons why they're trying to make this comparison is because you know oil has been that benchmark for evaluation of a lot of other things even outside the oil industry for quite a long time and is uh, I'm sure data would love to be that benchmark and I, I'm not saying that that couldn't happen I would be interested to see how you would make that benchmark you know because it, it, it's easy it's easier to put a value on something that you can actually hold and, and make a direct use of that's true. I will give you that. That there is no, you know, to my knowledge, there's no global standard for the valuation of data, um, it, like there is for the value of a commodity. I mean, I know with oil, there's different types. Like there's West Texas, there's Brent, there's, you know, um, what is it like Cushing? No, well? ultimately, it's it's determined its value by how hard it's going to be to process. If you have a crude that's really easy to process, you can immediately turn it into valuable products. You're going to get a lot more on the market for that. And so I think data definitely has a value like that. And I mean, if, if you talk about, you know, someone's telecommunication records or their shopping history, you know, you can get some very valuable insights out of those things uh, to be able to do anything from product recommendations. Health data has immense value, right? Being able to uh, do something personalized for a single person, but also if you have anonymous health data that lets you identify markers and uncover hidden insights that... Uh, could actually move the needle on treatments of diseases or linking different symptoms to one another. You know, there is immense value in that. I, I do think there's not one standard. There's no, uh, you know, no traded exchange that says all data gets priced in a certain way on this. Um, so I will agree that that's a difference. But I think because there's so many different types of data and there's such a massive amount of it being created every day, I think that's why it's the new oil. And I think we should argue this point, but you know, I, I don't think we're at peak oil. I know this is something that we've had some fears about over the last few decades of everybody thinking, oh, we're at peak oil. And for those that don't know, that basically means we're at the point where we've recovered more oil in the past than we will in the future. And it, our ability to get that oil will decline. But I think with data, we, are, we haven't even hit the, you know, almost the starting point of how much data we can generate and what we can do with that data. And so I think it is a commodity that's on the upswing even bigger than oil. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely see where data is coming from. I mean, I, I definitely don't think we're only going to ever generate more data tomorrow than we did today you know, as we add additional devices and additional sensors. And we, we see that in our industry as well. Right now, we're trying to decide you know, different solutions for pumps and flow meters that we put subsea they can generate a lot of data. And in the past, we've mostly done power and comms over the same copper lines, but now we're having to make switches to full fiber optic data systems in the subsea infrastructure because we just can't push 
that much data through a copper line. And so we're, we definitely get the whole sensor thing. We're, we've got a whole data science collection group within the company now that is taking everything from just trying to find anomalies in different productions or different cost centers that we can then adjust to, they were talking about putting in video cameras all around drilling rigs and platforms to actually, you could program it to look for dangerous situations that would then alert people as they get into these dangerous situations, hopefully before something actually happens. So you're, you're doing my job for me. You're arguing about why data is necessary to even find the oil. So how can data not be the new oil? So data is very necessary, but I think it has a different use. Data seems to be one of those things instead of, whenever we talk technology in oil and gas, a lot of times we, we divide that technology into two groups, enablers and enhancers. An enabler, like if you don't have it, something just doesn't happen. Like for instance, right now, the next step up for the oil and gas is the HPHT sector, so high pressure, high temperature. And so we're going after reservoirs that are in the neighborhood of 15 to 20,000 PSI. And so that would be, if you don't have equipment that can handle that, then you just can't do it. So that would be an enabler technology. Whereas I see data, you know, being able to monitor these things more would then be something that can enhance it, something that can make it more reliable, more useful, and overall enhance the recovery and the profitability of the project. So what if you had data about a field that nobody else had? I mean, that would be a game changer for you, right? Absolutely. So having that data would be more important than the oil that's in that. Well, no, because the data just about yes. oil... Just say yes. Just say yes. Yes, Robert, because the <laughs> love of data is what it's all about. Ah, there it goes. We've come full circle. End of story. It was a good episode. We'll talk to you later. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think we can both agree that quantity is generally better in both. The more data that we have, the more valuable it is and the more valuable we are. And the same thing with the amount of oil that we can get out of a field or the amount of oil that we can cover, recover in general as a company, right? So we're right. kind of neck and neck on that one. Um, and you did mention using things like video cameras and AI to, to do things on platforms. You know, I think that's a really great thing to bring up because AI is the darling of so many industries right now. And it's entirely dependent on data. Uh, you know, so I, I feel like that's just one of the many places that's a good example of there are industries out there, everyone's using data, the oil industry, telecommunications, healthcare, uh, you know, other uh, energy and utilities customers, governments, everybody's using data, but not every industry is entirely dependent on oil. True. But is every industry relying on data? Unless you're in a remote village that doesn't have very solid internet connection, I think it's a pretty strong likelihood that you're using data on a daily basis on, on almost any job that you have. But I'm open to uh, debating that if there's an example that you can think about. On that. Yeah, the, the first example that comes to mind is where we just came from. Uh, was it Cineholic? Very tasty treat. Uh, you know, did, did we need data to know that, that we wanted that? Do, do we need data to know that, that that's going to be what people want? I did need data to know how many calories are in that, so I know how much <laughs> I have to run after having that. But I would say that the flavors that are at a place like that are probably the results of science that are based on data. 
to make it something as enticing as it is, right? Right. So, so data is very important. Let me, let me throw, since you've been throwing data at me for a little while, let me throw a question back to you. Okay. So another way that I'd potentially say that oil and, and data are very different and why we might not try to make this comparison is if you compare oil and gas and a lot of your other bigger industries compared to something like Google that deals in a lot of data, is the amount of investment and the amount of capital that it takes to really get started and then the amount of assets that are then involved in trying to to develop the potential commodity. You know, I, I think that's a, one thing a lot of people lack is a real understanding of what it takes to bring gasoline to the pump. So you're saying that because of the amount of resources you have to invest in the beginning just to get the oil and then to transport it to a place that's usable to the general public, that's why data can never be the same as that. It's not, it's not the new oil because it doesn't have the upfront cost and the, uh, the transport concerns. That's why it's very different and, and maybe the comparison isn't necessarily fair. Okay. So I would... I see your point. I mean, I definitely think there is some huge upfront capital investment to go develop a field, but I think there's also significant investment to build a successful application or to build up a business to the scale of a Google or a Facebook. If you look at the amount of data centers that they have, the amount of cooling that they have, the amount of electricity that they use for that. I mean, there's, there's tons of capital that does go into scaling up to the point that they are to being able to generate and use the amount of data that they do. I don't think right now that it's uh, to the scale of oil if you look at one particular company. But I think if you were to look at all of the industries that do that as a whole versus the industry, the, the oil and gas industry that's limited to a handful of you know, major players, I still feel like data has overtaken oil in the, the amount of infrastructure that's out there to support everybody else. So this might be a place where we're just looking at it from two different lenses, I guess. Right, and, and that to me is kind of the crux of the issue is that I, I don't think these two necessarily compare. So you don't think it's a yes well. or a no, one is or one isn't the new oil. You think it's more of an apples and an oranges comparison. Right, like I, I don't know if any, I don't see anybody complaining near as much about how much they pay for iMusic or whatever as opposed to how much complaints we get whenever the price goes up three cents at the pump you so know? you're just going to sidestep our whole argument here and absolutely take the easy way out that, that's the way whenever you don't think you're going to win the argument you change it aha uh -huh. so you admit that i win the argument here i admit nothing <laughs> you plead the fifth is what you do well so you know we've talked about some of the reasons why we think that data is the new oil or why i think it is um you know, it's a valuable commodity, just like oil, different uses among applications. Um, there are a couple of things that I do want to touch on, and then I want to talk about some reasons why, uh, you know, maybe it's not the, not the new oil. So one of the reasons I, I think it is very similar to oil, and, and it's kind of a newer version of it, is there are some incredibly complicated ethical concerns with how we source data and how we use it, just like there were geopolitical and ethical concerns with how we use and, and source oil and how we've done that in the past and some of the political repercussions of, of that. And so do you, uh, do you agree with that point or, you know, do you see that as a, as a big part of oil's history is that there is a significant amount of 
political and social and economic impacts around the world based on, uh, you know, com- countries and companies going after this stuff? Absolutely. I mean, there's a huge security on both sides of that, you know, from the, the oil being so international. You know, we take very specific care in how that we interact in every country that we operate from the U.S. to any other country outside the U.S. We want to make sure that we operate within the bounds of as a good company that wants to partner with these countries. That's why some countries we might be one of the only outside operators in because Chevron has a reputation of, of doing things the right way. And I would say hopefully for the most part that's the case with any of the any of the majors out there, right? Like, right, right. So some of we Chevron in particular puts a, a big emphasis on relationships as opposed to potentially some of the others. But we definitely all of your super majors are, are going to make sure that we definitely do everything legally and morally. But, so, but then you, you also talk about like security of data. Mm-hmm. You know, within these oil companies, we take data security very seriously. We just, though very annoyingly. We just recently, our IT department shut down all of our USB drives. We can no longer plug in a USB drive. Um, I guess apparently a lot of people were bringing in issues through USB drives. They would actually do tests on us. IT would go put random thumb drives oh, around the Oh, they them out there. Ooh, man, <laughs> that's creative. Them in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, we'll diverge here for a second. That That is actually a tremendous cybersecurity concern. I mean, even the possibility of someone getting malware on their Android phone or iPhone possibly, and then saying, hey, I need to I need to charge my phone. I'm going to just plug it into my laptop here. And boom, that's a way for malware to get onto their machine. And the uh, what your IT department did was actually a very common social engineering technique that people will use to specifically target someone. You know, they may say, hey, I've got a meeting with someone. Let me, uh, you know, let me come in and meet them. Oh, they're not here right now. Can I just go use the restroom? And they just drop a, drop a thumb drive in the in the restroom and then someone's curious about it and just has to go and plug it in and boom, they've got something with, with some kind of access to their network. So from a cybersecurity standpoint, that's absolutely a concern. And I would say that, uh, you know, going back to data specifically, uh, the way that data, it, you know, the, the whole Cambridge Analytica concern with, with Facebook and the way that data was acquired there and how it was used and how it's been used in, you know, the 2016 political cycle and how much data is available online and things like GDPR that just went into effect recently in Europe. There's a tremendous concern with what data we are generating and how it's being used. And that's why I think this is again an example of why this is the new oil because the concerns that we had before with oil, they're still there, but we've got that and even more with with data from so many different companies that are using it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm definitely from. I'm a bit of an ostrich in this case. I, I just you are an ostrich. You're way taller than me. That's why you're an ostrich. <laughs> I, I, I'm not real afraid of data and and my data potentially getting out. If somebody wants my data and and can use it to, you know, I I know we've talked about ads and stuff and how that potentially generates revenue in the past. But if if somebody wants to show me ads for things that better relate to me. Why would I not want that? I, I'm. I guess I just don't know what somebody's going to do with my data to hurt me, and you know, and there's obviously the identity theft issue that could come across. Uh, if somebody wants to pay my bills, they are more <laughs> than welcome to. Well, 
Uh, we'll have to have you back for maybe a cybersecurity exploration on that, and we'll invite some people to uh, to see what they can find about your data and, and, and bring that to light session. to you. <laughs> see if we can keep Josh safe. Yeah, so one other thing I do want to touch on is there are certain things that can't function without oil. Uh, and you were telling me this a little bit before the uh, the podcast. And, you know, I think one of those things is passenger airplanes and certain boats. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, what what is an example of why those things just can't function without oil. So one of the amazing things about chemistry and things like gasoline and jet fuel is just the energy density of these liquids is just absolutely astonishing. And it just, it hasn't been matched by anything that I know of other than maybe like nuclear fusion. And so you, you, you take gasoline and the amount of energy, so the amount of energy in per, say, cubic foot of jet fuel, and you compare that to, say, if you wanted to have like an all-electric plane, you know, you wanted to have Tesla was going to make a plane. So you, you try to then fill up to get that same amount of energy with a battery, and it's going to weigh some like 30, 40 times as much. Elon Musk, I know you're a listener to this podcast, so you just heard the challenge from Josh here. He wants you to make a plane with a Tesla Powerwall in it. So if you can do that for us, please uh, invite us on board for a demo. And, and personally, I would love that. I would love for him <laughs> to make a better battery Tesla. And, and if he could just drop the prices a little bit for me, because those are amazing cars. Model 3 calling your name, right? Uh, well, so I would say that... You know, I, I agree with you there that like right now it is just not feasible to have an airplane that pound for pound uh, per capita can transfer as many people as efficiently as one fueled by jet fuel. Um, but I think similarly there are, you know, there are individual companies like Netflix and Google that can't operate without data. And there's entire industries now that having a massive amount of data is, you know, par for the course it's the baseline. You've got to have that to be a key player in it. And so, again, this is another one where I think this is a commonality between the two, and it's just data has shown a similarity to oil and gas, but it's grown up into other industries like agriculture, manufacturing, healthcare. And I know that you know you could probably make the argument that oil is necessary for most of those right now as well. Like if you didn't have all the plastic containers and instruments, maybe you wouldn't be as successful or sterile in a hospital facility, so you couldn't give as much care. But you know, if you, with the amount of data that's generated from everything, from X-rays and images to uh, you know the data from tests and the data about you know how long people have stayed, being able to use that to improve quality of care and, and to improve outcomes, I think is starting to overtake how important you know the 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 plastic in the bottle on the counter is. But maybe that's just me being a little bit affected by growing up in the data industry for as many years as I've been doing that. So, so let me ask you, and I, unfortunately I, I probably already know the answer because I know you're not a couch potato, but which would you miss more if you ran out of gasoline in your car or your Netflix subscription? So, Which would put a bigger dent in your life if you couldn't get a hold of? Well, yeah, I mean, so obviously I will give you the, the gas wood, right? Because I, I normally have a hellacious commute that I have to go through day by day. So I could live without some shows for a little while, but I won't be very fruitful to society if I don't have that. That is true. But on the other hand, I think that 
there will be a time, and it's quickly coming, where we become less and less dependent on that from a transportation uh, standpoint. Um, but you still have the ability to do work from home. You know, even if I didn't have the oil to take me uh, to generate gasoline to take me to work, I would still have the ability to do things here. Um, but I, I would love to see ways where you can get data to grow your food. Well, think to generate of, your electricity. So think of how how much more yield we've gotten out of crops doing uh, things with data. And it's enhanced it. Enhanced, enabled, enabled potato, it. potato. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, well, let hey, me... Enhance the, the apple orange thought. Okay, I, I can see where you're coming from. I still think it's the new oil, and you said that you can't win, so... You know, we'll da da data's like the peanut butter. Oil is like the bread. You know, it's... It, it's <laughs> The bread's always What's, been, how do you Which make one's the, the Nutella? That's, you, the, that's the real question. Uh, the, the Nutella is like the super date. <laughs> okay, well, so let's talk about some ways that maybe data isn't the new oil. Um, and you can see this in a lot of the articles that, that, that have been written on this and that we've looked at. So one is that oil is generally finite, but data is not. That's what a lot of people say. You know, oil is a, like you said, a physical resource, but data can be copied very rapidly. It can be generated. Once it's generated, it can sit there and, you know, it's never really going to go away unless someone purposely deletes it. Um, but my opinion on this in the way that it's different is that I feel like there is a shelf life on data that makes it less usable over time. So your sensor data in your car that's generated is incredibly useful in the moment to keep you safe or incredibly useful to navigate you from point A to point B. And then it may have a tertiary a tertiary um, utility in that, you know, it might do some things to feed some algorithms to, um, to optimize where you go a lot or to, to optimize times of day that, you, that it's going to recommend, hey, you need to start your commute at this time because you normally need to be here at this point and today there's a big accident or something like that. Right. Your, your but, automatic transmissions in your cars do a lot of learning right. based on how you drive to adapt to that. But six months from now, the data that I generated today in my autonomous car is not going to be very useful, just like a lot of sensors that we have. After a few hours to a few weeks of time go by, that's not going to be quite as useful. So in theory, data is infinite, but and it can be copied, but in a way, there is a finite utility to it. So. Which is interesting because I 100% I agree with that. You know, out-of-date data is just not going to be near as useful. And, and that's maybe another one of those big differences is you, to really, it sounds like to get the greatest use out of that data, you kind of need to use it in a timely manner. Whereas oil, we can store that for quite a long time mm -hmm. and then refine it when we need to, use it when we need to. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that kind of goes back to that. So this might be one point that I, I would concede where it's not really a good comparison. Um, we did talk a little bit already about there not being a standard price benchmark for data. Uh, we talked a little bit about it not being a physical asset. Its data can be relatively easily duplicated or shared. Um, one of the things here that uh, some of the articles listed is data is more useful the more that it's used, whereas oil loses energy the more that it's used or processed. So give us a little, you know, 30-second science uh, overview of the loss of energy as you go through and refine things. Right, so it, it's not as much of a loss of energy during the refining. The refining is more to get specific products out of that. But as you know, with any hydrocarbon, you, you generally use it 
uh, at least whenever you're using it for fuel, once you burn that, it's it's completely gone. Mm -hmm. uh, some of those byproducts can then be more durable, like you said earlier, whenever you make them into plastics. That is something that's going to be useful for for quite a few times, but the bulk of what you generate out of oil products is going to be burned and has a one-time use. And there is some efficiency loss, right? So with a you know with a combustion engine. Even though the the gas that you put in it has a certain energy capacity, that's not the energy that actually propels the car, right? Because there's some amount lost to heat and things like that. Yeah, heat heat's a real uh, sucker of energy in, in the world. It, I want to say internal combustion engines are somewhere around 30, 30%, somewhere in there. Even some of the really new technologies that like Infinity and Mazda are coming out with, they're still maybe they're hitting 40%, but it... As you say, it's really not the most efficient use, but that's okay because there's so much energy in gasoline that you have the ability to waste a little bit. And I would say that this is one point where I do feel like data becomes more valuable the more that you use it. You know, If you have sensor data just sitting there and no one's ever looking at it, no algorithms are ever running on it, it's not going to be very useful. But if you take that data and you build insights and then you take those insights and you use them to build more, and you and you go through that cycle over and over, you can become much much stronger in what you're doing based on the data that has come before you. And so I, I do agree that that's a difference. Um, but again, here I feel like this is a point where data is valuable, and it's so valuable to us as a society, just like oil has been in the past. Right. We just look at how much people are spending on data. It's obvious that there's a very significant value. Right. And you just look at the, the value of how a search engine can be worth so much. But also, if you look at the, I will play devil's advocate for you for a second here. If you look at the amount, uh, the the price of oil and how it's gone from what, like thirty, forty dollars a barrel up to seventy dollars more recently, and and how much of that is still used on a daily basis. I mean, there is still still a a lot of value being placed in that, and there's going to be for you know decades to come. Right, and that's an, I don't know if data has seen those types of fluctuations because, like you said, we were at in the 30s not that long ago. Not that long ago, we were at like 140 as well. Yeah. And so huge, huge swings. And it's just, it is amazing the amount of capital that goes into building some of these projects. I mean, the last project I came off of was 40 plus billion dollars to be able to produce these fields. And, and, and even then, you know, we, we always talk about these big American super majors, and even then, we're actually small fish in this when you compare it to the national oil companies. And so even these billion-dollar projects that we're doing is still relatively small drops in the barrel compared to what the world consumes on a daily basis. So we have to do many of these billion-dollar projects every year on a global basis to be able to keep up with demand. All right, so I want to ring the bell here then because you've gotten me excited about some of the data of oil, and I'd like to transition and talk about that. So let's declare victory here and both agree that data is the new oil, and then we can move on. Good with that? Okay. We, we, we will go ahead and say it because I know earlier when we were at lunch, your wife said she's never actually seen us fight. Let's let's just not bring that That's into true. This, you know, this, this, that is – in about 25 years, we did realize earlier today that I, I don't think we've ever fought like an old couple, so – we don't want to start that streak today. Absolutely. Okay, I'm the winner. Woo!
Feels good. I, I, you need to come to town more often because I don't ever get to win fights against Annie. Nice, so I'm going to nice. have to uh, take take the win that I can get here. <laughs> Uh, okay, well, I want to switch because over the, you know, over the past few years that you've been working with Chevron, I've heard bits and pieces of uh, just really interesting types of data that come out of your day-to-day job. But I want to talk about some specifics here for some of the people that listen to the podcast. A lot of times you've heard data deep dives on topics like fireworks and cheesecake and things like that. So I want to talk about some of the specifics about the oil industry that the average person may not be aware of because. When I learned about some of these, it, it just boggles my mind the scale of things and the quantity and the complexity of it. So, what are you know? What's something that you want to start with? All right. So I, I'm not sure as to what stats are going to be cheesecake, but one none of them can actually. Yeah, none. One of the more interesting is probably the the pressures that we deal with, and so. That's one of the things that I love about the oil and gas industry, and for me specifically working in subsea and being offshore, is that we're on the technological edge, pushing everything we can to be able to bring new oil assets to the market and to be able to do it as economically as possible. And some of the new fields we're going after are, you know, 15,000 PSI used to be kind of the top benchmark. And now we're starting to find reservoirs that are above 15,000 PSI. And so we're just kind of going up to the next mark of 20,000 PSI to be able to design and test this equipment so to what be able it, to put it into service. So what does that mean to me? So 20,000 PSI means at the bottom of the sea where you're drilling, you've got equipment and pipes and things like that, and there's a lot of pressure down there, right? Right. So, so basically what we have to plan for is that if you, if you shut in the well and it builds up to full reservoir pressure again, what is the pressure you're going to see? in your equipment. And some of that is, is up, up to 20,000 PSI. If, if you try to understand what 20,000 PSI is, if, if you take you know an average dinner plate, I think we measured the dinner plate you had in your cabinet, it was about 10 and a half inches wide. If you take 20,000 PSI and apply that to that dinner plate, that is about 1.7 million pounds. Which is an astronomical amount of weight I mean, I know when I eat cheesecake, I weigh a lot, but I feel like I can still stand on a plate and I'm not going to cause any problems, right? Right. And, and, and so that's another one of those things when when we deal with numbers that big, a lot of times we still don't, you know, 20,000 PSI didn't really understand what that meant. You know, 1.7 million pounds, what is that? It's a big number. What does that really mean? Well, we looked at the weight of a 737, and that's about 185, roughly, thousand pounds. So that means on this dinner plate... At 20,000 PSI, you have what, like nine 737s? You stack nine 737s up onto this plate, and you need it to hold that. So not only do you need it to do that, but you know, you're know you not literally just talking about a plate that's going to have something sitting on it, and that's it. You're talking about pieces of machinery miles and miles down at the bottom of the seafloor that have to operate correctly and withstand that much weight. Right, so it, it's got to be able to hold that pressure inside, and it's it's not only going to be able to hold that pressure, but when we tested it to make sure it would hold that pressure, we might have tested that at 1.5 times that. So, so 30,000 30, PSI. Yes. Wow. And, and, and then you, you've got valves that need to be able to open and close with those types of pressures pushing against them. And, and all of this, the one of the most costly things about dealing with subsea is it's obviously not very easy to get to and do maintenance. 
So we've got to be able to design this equipment to handle those conditions, to handle the rough conditions of the production fluid with corrosion and erosion and, and different chemicals and microbes that are going to try to eat away at these, these metal parts. And we need to be able to do that where to reliably operate for 30 years without ever touching it. Because, you know, one of the biggest examples that we always use is we had a tubing failure. So just, just a little piece of tubing, stainless steel tubing on one of our subsea pieces of equipment that broke. And then that caused an issue. We couldn't operate some other mechanism because of that. And so you try to compare that to the cost of that had happened at some plant on land or even top sides on a platform that might have taken a, an hour or two to fix and a couple thousand dollars in parts and even paying for the guy to do it. Whereas that subsea operation took roughly like six months to be able to complete and probably like 40, 50,000, 40 to 50 million dollars to be able to replace just, just a tubing that broke. And I'm assuming that's not including the, uh, the cost of you know, having to stop and not get that oil out and be able to sell it on the open market during that time. Right. Deferred production is a huge cost when you're dealing with reliability offshore. So I did some rough math on, on this. So I think, you know, if I were to estimate, you said some of the fields are able to generate 15,000 barrels per day, which is a mind-boggling number in and of itself. Yeah. Well, but, and that's, that's one well. Okay. You might have one well that can generate 15,000. And... So if you take that multiplied by $67, which was one of the recent prices of oil per barrel times, I, you know, I would assume 90 days, but I think you said six months, so it could be even worse than this. But at 90 days of closure, that's $90 million of lost revenue plus the 40 to $50 million to actually fix it. So, I mean, it just it boggles my mind when you think about, you know, I'm designing something that can hold nine 737s worth of pressure and I've got to design it to work four miles down under sea, and I've got to engineer it to work for 30 years. And I know you said you engineer it to work for 30 years, but if you want to guarantee that it works for 30 years, like what are you really doing to, like if you're testing, if you know something has to operate at 20,000 PSI and you're testing it to 30,000, what are you doing if you want to make sure that something lasts for 30 years? How long are you actually like trying to build that part to last? It, it varies on parts. To me, one of the more interesting one that's kind of black magic is when we deal with risers. So the pipe that actually then goes from the seafloor and then up to the platform. So this is kind of a piece of pipe that's then suspended. So this in, in the current and the wave action and just the platform moving around, these, these risers are constantly moving. And so they're, they're taking what we call fatigue damage. And whenever we do, we have ways to do the calculations to determine what that fatigue damage is, but those calculations are very variable and we're not 100% sure on just how accurate they can be. So we put a 10 times safety factor when we design these risers and to be able to handle that fatigue. So if we want a riser to be able to operate for 30 years, we will design it and do the calculations for 300. Wow. So you're making something that can withstand that pressure that far down for 300 years. For 300 years, yes. It is just insane to me. And so, you know, we, we talked about how much it could, be, it could cost for something to be down. Um, but another thing that's mind-blowing is 
you were telling me a little bit before we started about an offshore platform and how much revenue it can generate. And so in a given year, I think we did some rough calculations and we figured that uh, a platform could generate somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.3 billion of, of oil revenue for a company. Right. And I think that we made that calculation at roughly 100,000 barrels a day, which is a, a that's a good sized platform. At, at their peak, but not like a max one. I mean, there's. Now, I I'm pretty sure there's other platforms out there that can still probably process quite a bit more than that as well. And so that's more than the than the entire GDP of Belize, which is at 1.8 billion. So if you wanted to equate a single platform to a country, that's somewhere around the the neighborhood of comparison. But tell me this, you know, even with all that you're able to recover, how much, you know, are you taking a field and you're draining it until it's bone dry or you know how, how much oil are you getting out of it uh, unfortunately we're not getting anywhere close to that one one thing that people might not realize is that oil in the ground we're not drilling into huge caverns that have been just liquid filled with oil we're it really what it compares to is we're drilling into a big rock sponge that like the sponge you would potentially have in your kitchen whenever you put it under the water you know, all the water seeps into all of those pores within the sponge. So that's, that's essentially what the oil's done, is there's oil trapped in all of these pores inside the rocks. And so whenever we go down there, that is the data that we use as we do seismic and as we do drilling and we log the data on how all of that subsurface looks. We'll look to see what is the porosity, you know, how big are these pores, how well connected are they. So whenever we drill into that well, and essentially what we do is we create a low pressure inside the well bore and then the pressure of the reservoir then pushes the oil into the well bore and then up and out. And so we need to determine is how do we do that most efficiently. And even then due to the fact that it is all trapped within this rock, 20% recovery maybe. And wow. then we start doing different methods to either reduce the viscosity by injecting gas or different polymers. You might do what they call water flood. So we'll, drill, we'll drill water injectors and then just pump water into the reservoir and try to essentially kind of sweep through and pick up more oil that way. Hmm. But even then, you know, maybe you get up into the high 20s, low 30%. So we, we most of the oil stays in the ground. Wow. So we are quite a bit away from peak oil then, for sure, uh, according to that. I mean, peak oil maybe from our current recovery methods, but if you talk about absolute amount in the ground, we're probably nowhere close to that. Right, we, we are nowhere close to that. Very interesting. So we, we looked up some other stats, too, about just how much oil is used around the world and found what I think are staggering statistics. You know, somewhere around 84 million barrels of oil are consumed per day around the world. And then um, of that, the U.S. consumes about two and a half gallons per person per day. Right, so two and a half gallons was the total, if you took the entire usage and just divided it straight up per capita, whereas if you can imagine a lot of the usage of oil is done by industry rather than specific people. I think once you back a lot of that out, it's only around about a gallon Per person per day. So it's industries doing that on our behalf or to fulfill our needs, not us directly doing it. Right. I mean, for, for you to be able to transport all those things to the grocery store, to be able to build the tanks to power your military and 
And we uh, also found that about 40 to 50% of the oil generated in the U.S. is used for transportation, which was pretty high, I thought. I thought there would be actually more of it that would be used, um, you know, by like electricity generation and, and things like that. So uh, one of the things that I found surprising was the top three countries by proven oil reserves. So I, I, I know a lot of people don't know this, but I knew Venezuela was number one. Um, I thought the U.S. was like number two or number three, but what, what are the other ones that round out the top three? So you've got Saudi Arabia is number two, which I, that's probably one most everybody else would have picked. Probably the, the number three spot in, in bronze is probably the one that I don't know if anybody else would have really thought about, but is Canada. Yeah, that is surprising. But they have – I can't remember. The, I know they have a uh, – they have a lot of a specific type of oil that's not the same as what's produced in Texas, right? It's like thicker or something. Right. So they, their big reserve is in oil sands. Okay. And so that's it's a very different way of producing that oil, very different way of processing it. That, that can be very labor and process intensive, which, which is what currently makes it a bit more difficult to produce, which is why they're not producing a lot of it. And, and the U.S. actually rounded out the top 10 as number 10. That was pretty surprising to me. I thought we would be a bit higher up than that. Right, but I, I think it's we're in the top 10, which is great. But I, I think the average public, I don't know if they would have necessarily seen us in the top 10, especially considering all of that fear around that if somebody else, you know, quit producing or, if, you know, if the Middle East has issues, that suddenly we would just be, we would have normal oil. Right. And, and, you know, that's that's not true. We produce quite a bit on our own. Right. And with a, a neighbor to the north of us in the top three, I mean, that's a, a pretty good indication that it's a, a little bit more diverse than a lot of people think of. And, and Canada's very generous. <laughs> we, uh, they, they do have good maple syrup, too. Hey. <laughs> uh, so we talked a lot about energy density uh, over a couple of different points in the podcast. We did go back and, and, and look up some... Uh, some calculations to equate gas and how dense the energy is in that versus a lithium-ion battery. And so what, what did we find on that? Right. So whenever you look at, we said earlier, you know, gasoline and jet fuel has significant densities. If you look at gas has a density of just over 12,000 watt hours per kilo. Now, I know I'm using some metric terms here. But I, I just got back. That is a little scary years. and confusing for us American customary uh, stuff people. We we really need to make. What a is change. that in feet pounds? In feet pounds, it's another <laughs> number. Or fortnights. What is that in fortnights? <laughs> so if if we compare that, gasoline has twelve thousand. Let's just call them units of energy. You compare that to your lithium ion batteries today. They might have on the higher end about two hundred and sixty five. So back of the envelope calculation, that's saying that uh, dollar for dollar, pound for pound, ounce for ounce, and in this case, kilogram for kilogram, if you have a kilogram of gas and you have a kilogram of a lithium-ion battery, the gas has 46 times more energy than the lithium-ion battery. Is that the right way of thinking about Correct. it? Correct. Or if, as we were talking about earlier with planes, that to be able to have enough energy on board the plane to get from where you're going to where you need to go, you can carry 46 times less weight. So you would have to be able to carry 46 times more, like whatever the fuel tanks are on a, on a jet, you would have to carry 46 gas tanks full of batteries to get you there. Or you're gonna have to completely change the paradigm and make a much more efficient battery or some kind of engine that 
uses energy in a much different way to provide that same amount of thrust to weight ratio. Correct. Yeah, it, it probably wouldn't be 46 times due to the fact that, as we talked about early with these burning fossil fuels isn't 100% efficient, whereas okay. like electric engines can be very, very efficient in the 90 plus percent range. And, and so it, it wouldn't so, necessarily be 46 times, but even you know, even if you take, you know, say those turbines are 30% efficient and an electric motor can be 90 plus, so you divide that by three, that, yeah. that, that's still so a still good 15, 10 20 to 15 times. times. Right. Yeah. Okay. So still a sizable difference, but hopefully we can churn through that with some economies of scale and, and some technology improvements in the in the battery industry. And if we do that, we might be out of a job. I don't know. Well, no, we, we're very diverse. <laughs> okay, so the last stat that I want to talk about a little bit is length records. And uh, so I'm going to let you explain some of these, but we took a look at some of the different pipe uh, installations and how long some of them are, including this gigantic scary hole in the ground in Russia. So tell me a little bit about some of the length records set in the oil and gas industry. So whenever you look at how deep we're drilling and how far we're drilling, it can be pretty pretty amazing that we can actually get these things done. You know, that, that really deep well, I think was a, a little over 40,000 feet that we found. And then the easiest one that other people can likely compare to is the Deepwater Horizon, which is the, the drilling rig that unfortunately burnt down in Macondo, that prior to that, it had actually drilled the deepest oil well in history. And that was just over 35,000 feet in vertical depth. So that's almost seven miles. Almost seven miles. And whenever wow. you think about that, you know, that'd be essentially if you were standing on the top of the Empire State Building and tried to take a straw and put it in a Coke can that was sitting down on the sidewalk. That's that's the type of precision that these drillers can get. You know, they because we the, the subsurface guys and the reservoir guys they want that hole in a very specific spot because they they've done their black magic to say where the best place is to be able to pull the oil out of the ground the most efficiently. And then these drillers have to put that drill bit in the exact spot that they tell them. Again, like you said, from seven miles up in potentially anywhere from seven to 10,000 feet of water, maybe. So this is ridiculous to me because have you ever been holding a drink with a straw in it and you're talking to someone and you're like listening to them and you don't want to like break eye contact. So you try to get the drink up to your face and you're sitting there like rubbing a straw all over your face as you try to find it. It's the most confusing, ridiculous thing, movement that you ever try. I can't even do that with a, what, six inch straw and it being three inches away from my face to take a drink. And you're telling me that we have this kind of accuracy from the top of the Empire State Building or seven feet above a hole that we drilled. Right. And, and, and so the reason for that, and that's exactly why we pay a million to a million and a half dollars a day for these drilling rigs. And, and some of those wells might take six to nine months to drill. That is mind-blowing. I, I do want to talk one bit more about, so the, the super deep hole is something called the Kola Super Deep Borehole in Russia. And this was not an actual well, right? Right, so this wasn't actually an oil well. This was a scientific well, just to get additional data down from that far down into the Earth's crust. And so this one was a little bit farther than Deepwater Horizon. It was about eight miles but are we literally saying we thought it was a good idea to just drill an eight mile deep hole? 
I mean, I don't know if any of these guys have seen very many sci-fi movies, but that generally goes wrong. You probably hear some screaming down there or something like that. Yes. I mean, I'm I'm sure there had to be some pennies dropped in there, maybe some bottles of uh, of, of vodka since it was in Russia. Uh, but good grief! I mean, a could you even hear something that fell in an eight eight mile hole, and then how long would it take for something to fall eight miles? We we could calculate that. I think the I know roughly the terminal velocity of a human, which why I like know 120 this, an hour, right? 120 miles an hour. So I know when you when you skydive, you can get say um, if you skydive from 15,000 feet, you can get something like a minute of free fall before you get around the 5,000 uh, mark. So you're falling say two roughly two miles in a in a minute. So that would be so eight minutes. Uh, well, it's eight miles, right? So yeah, oh, so two 16. two miles, two miles per minute, eight miles, so four four minutes, right? That's a long freaking time, man. If somebody fell in there, you can really think to yourself. You would have a right long now. time to contemplate what was about yeah. to happen to you. Your bladder would be completely empty on you, and you would know it before you. I, I mean, something tells me I, I I don't remember. It didn't say just how wide the hole was, but it was probably not that wide. You're probably gonna bounce off the walls a few times on the way down. So mm-hmm. you. I'm not sure you'd still be awake by the time you got to the bottom. Man, that's crazy. And then there was one last one, something called the the Chavo well. What? Tell me a little bit about that one. Right. So this is a really interesting one because it's actually most of that well bore, while it was very long, it was almost 45,000 feet. Most of it was horizontal, and so this is where they actually took pipe and then, as they were drilling and spinning that pipe to spin the drill bit to eat away at the rock. They actually then started going horizontal and then went out. I think it was like almost 40,000 feet horizontally. So what's easier to do to drill, say, you know, a three, four, five mile hole straight down or to drill like a seven mile hole sideways? So uh, assuming you don't hit anything interesting, drilling straight down is definitely going to be quite a bit easier. It, it takes a lot of specialized equipment to be able to do that kickoff off to at a certain angle. And then, again, as we were talking about with them threading that straw into that Coke can, now think about trying to thread that straw across to the next building and put a Coke can on somebody else's right. you know, boardroom table. That's exactly what happened in The Simpsons, I think, when Mr. Burns started doing that. I think that was the – I think I'm getting the show right for that. Nice. So. All right, Josh. Well, I certainly appreciate you sitting down with me and educating me on the oil and gas industry and, and having a good argument with me about data. I, I've found it fascinating, and I hope the, the folks that are listening to this have as well. If you want more information about any of the stuff that we talked about today, check out the show notes at for the love of data slash E29, and you'll get some of the stats that we talked about as well as links to all the articles talking about is data the new oil and some of the points and counterpoints that we talked about. So Again, Josh, thanks for joining me on this, and hopefully we can have you back again soon. Uh, absolutely. I mean, with the one million listeners that you have, you, you said that I'd be a rock star. So, Indeed you are. You're always going to be my rock star, buddy. I'll catch up with you later. We hope you're enjoying the For the Love of Data podcast. If you are, please support us by leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts, such as iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. To stay plugged in to all things data, subscribe to our mailing list at fortheloveofdata.com. You can also find show notes for all of our episodes on the website as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's topic or ideas for future episodes. To get in touch, tweet us. We're at loveofdata 
or at Robert Fur on Twitter. Thanks again for joining us, and until next time, keep spreading the love of data to the world around you.